The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot. I'm the publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me is David Fishman, uh, who's the senior manager at the Lantau Group, a Hong Kong-based economic consultancy group. And David, I want to make sure, can you hear me okay? Just make sure that it's working properly. Yeah, I can hear you just fine. I am a little concerned about whether or not everybody will be able to hear me clearly enough without any lag. I am on a VPN because I'm based in Shanghai. And I'm sure that's something we're going to have to <laughs> we're going to have to talk about. So so no, but you sound fine. So all right, so listen, David, I obviously I appreciate that it's very late there. I think it's around midnight or so. But before um, we get into discussion around China and energy and and you know everything that we'll get into for this hour, talk about real quick your background, who you are, and what you do. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. So my name is David Fishman. I'm from the United States. I've been based in China, working in China for the last decade. I came out here at the very earliest point. Came out here to study Chinese. Got my first job out here, and I've worked my whole career here in in the energy sector. Started out focusing primarily on nuclear power, bringing nuclear technology from everywhere around the world, pretty much, but mostly the U.S. and Europe into China. And a couple of years ago, my firm was swallowed by my current employer, Lantau Group. Where my focus spread out a little bit more, and now I'm looking at nuclear, still a little bit, but more solar, wind, grid, renewables deployment, and looking at both from the developer perspective, building big power plants, and then the big, big multinationals that need to consume a lot of power in China to, to keep the lights on, to keep the goods flowing. So I've been out here my whole time, my whole career. I uh, did a master's degree out here. I speak Mandarin, and I'm pretty embedded, I guess, as one can be for a uh, for a non-Chinese national living and working in the Chinese power sector. All right. So let's educate the audience a little bit, David, about the state of China in terms of energy reliance, dependence. Uh, what does energy look like in China? How uh, much uh, of the current price is a concern? Just kind of lay out some some historical information here for the audience. Well, sure. Yeah. So you've got you've got energy and then you've got power. Now I'm I'm a power guy primarily. The world of energy, you know, we can talk about oil and gas and and you know the whole the whole large world of everything that's inside. I try to I try to stay focused on the areas where I consider myself, you know, knowledgeable and don't want to waste everybody's time. So I will be talking or I'll try to talk mostly about power and the stuff that goes into power. So coal, hydro, wind, solar, stuff like that and nuclear of course. 
And China has been on a, a multi-decade journey to get where it is now, starting from, you know, the 90s and the early 2000s, which was an area of, you know, a time of great power scarcity. For China, the industrial demand was growing rapidly. Power demand just generally was growing rapidly and, and new capacity couldn't keep up at all. And we had rolling blackouts. We had brownouts. Investors were welcomed in. And when I say investors, I mean power developers. You had foreign large companies coming in and building power plants. And then, then it started slowing down. And, and that imbalance really evened out. And there was a long period of time when foreign investors weren't interested in the Chinese power sector anymore. And the Chinese power sector didn't look like a really attractive opportunity anymore. It didn't seem like there was attractive returns to be had. And at, this was at the same time, whereas China was moving towards a period of more self-sufficiency, being able to finance and build its own projects being able to bring in its own technology or manufacture, you know, its own massive steam turbines, things like that, and and really bringing it more in in house, and then the transition starting, you know, going into the early 2010s, renewables start to enter into the picture a lot more. The nuclear starts to enter into the picture a lot more, and the 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 feeling of the industry starts to evolve a little bit more. We're we're De decentralizing, we're liberalizing slowly, slowly, slowly. The, the Chinese power sector is still heavily dominated by state-run firms, but it's slowly spinning out some portions of it and decentralizing some portions of it. And now we see opportunities for international investors to get back into the power sector, to take equity stakes in power plants, things like that. So it's 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 a, an industry with its with its ebbs and wanes, its uh, ups and downs, and definitely right now it's it's back on a on an upswing in terms of being able to attract international attention and be becoming a more liberalized, more welcoming, and greener sector. So in the states, power is much more like a local monopoly, right? When you think about utility companies in the U.S. You've got certain power providers that are pretty much the ones that cover everything there. Is it is it the similar type of situation in China? And then distinguish maybe between pervasiveness and accessibility of power, electricity, when it comes to city versus suburban. Because I'm going to assume that a lot of the investors that came in came in because they were basically trying to front run more factories, more industrial production. So maybe kind of talk through those those dynamics compared to the U.S. a bit. Yeah, sure. So China's electrification rate is now very high. And that wasn't the case, say, 10, 15 years. I mean, it was always high, like we say, over 90, over 95 percent. But when you say 5 percent of the Chinese population doesn't have access to power, that's, you know, 50 million people. So it's it's, it's just massive. The rural electrification campaign of it took a good 15, 20 years to connect the most remote locations, the, the tops of mountains, you know, very, very remote regions where sometimes you couldn't connect lines and they had to use micro hydropower and solar panels, stuff like that. But they have done really great work in that regard. And I think today the Chinese electrification rate stands at something like 99.8%, something like that. And so that's Urban uh, and and suburban and rural everywhere is highly electrified. When it comes to the power value chain, it is unwinding. So if you went back, say, 15, 20 years, completely vertically integrated, single kind of monolith, the national power company that was responsible for generation, for transmission, 
for distribution and and for ultimately retail power sales, all one big company. And that's all been spun out over the decades. So maybe some people are familiar with the term the big five, right? The big five refers to the five largest state-owned power generators, producers of power. At the same time, you've got your regional transmission companies. Now, it does make sense for transmission and distribution to be a to be a monopoly, the same way it's done in many other countries. And so, China has uh, state grid, which is most of the country. China Southern Grid, which handles one regional grid down in the south, and then a relatively small company in Mongolia, Inner Mongolia. But regionally, they are monopolies. When we get to retail, you know, actually delivering delivering the power to the end customer, that's totally opened up now in China. So we have independent retailers. You can have wholesale purchase of power and chop it up and sell it to your power customers any way they want it. And that's been uh, opened up and liberalized since uh, since 2015. So it's uh, it's been quite the journey coming from a single monolith of a company that does everything to the generation sector being spread out with those big five generators, a bunch of smaller state-owned generators, some regional or provincial level generators, a small private sector. It is possible. It's just difficult. And even a few foreign firms involved, although it's still dominated by the big state-owned companies. I'm going to assume that the, the technology implementation is much more advanced than in the U.S., right? So a lot of people talk about how the grid in the U.S. needs a, a massive update, a massive overhaul. Yes, you can, you know, I guess, sell back or redistribute excess energy from solar panels back to the local power provider. But I'm going to assume that China is far more advanced in terms of the way all that kind of interconnects. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, well, the U.S. grid was state-of-the-art for when it was built many decades ago in, in many cases. And, and China's grid is state-of-the-art for when it built, which is largely within the last couple decades. And when we talk about a kind of the, the crown jewels of the Chinese transmission grid, that would be, of course, the ultra high voltage network, the UHV network. So you've got UHV DC, uh, direct current lines, traver- traversing the entire country. All right. So, so let, let's, there's a lot of different directions we can go in terms of, you know, exactly your point about, you know, 5% means 50 million. You've got to make sure everyone has basic you know, power needs and, and, and different types of ways of doing that. But I don't know if you want to kind of finish that thought before you dropped off. Yeah, I think the end of that point was just, you know, the UHV system is China's kind of one of China's crown jewels in its power market or it's in its power sector development that no other country really has developed it at that scale and at this level of maturity and and at this level of modern sophistication that you can own a factory in Zhejiang and say, I'd like to contract for some of that wind power from Northwest China and you can make it happen. Are there are there certain sources of power that China favors over others? So there's nuclear, there's solar, there's wind, I'm sure there's all kinds of other things. But are there certain areas that China tends to lean toward for any particular reason? Well, historically, of course, it's been coal. Coal is abundant. Coal is cheap. China has a bunch of coal domestically. And so it made sense for, for quite a few decades to have a very coal-heavy power sector. And certainly in the last 10 years or so, we've, we've seen increasing awareness that, that the power sector should be diversified away from coal and the idea that a long-term plan to green the power sector should be in place. But again, it was still a lot of talk until just a couple years ago, really. And that since the announcement of the coal peaking plan, so 2030, we peak coal, 2060, achieve carbon neutrality, uh, not coal, sorry, peak carbon by 2030, and then uh, 
carbon neutrality by 2060. And that has really stimulated what was, yeah, okay, let's build some some wind, let's build some solar. Hydro is always great. You know, we can build hydro wherever it makes sense geologically. Nuclear, yeah, we'll build a bit of nuclear, but still we're going to be mostly coal. And that just switched the entire way uh, the industry is thinking about it. And now, wow, we've got a couple more years that we're allowed to build coal. 2025 is supposed to be the coal peak. And then after that, we've got to find a way to make it work with all low carbon sources. And that means nuclear, that means hydro, that means wind and solar. So the inclination and the, the favored energy type has gone from kind of ambiguous to or we like coal but you know we're not too too concerned about any specific type to it would be good if we can have renewables to okay now we're going to do nothing but renewables very soon let's get ready for that has been just lightning fast really just in the last few years yeah yeah for sure especially when you throw out a big you know big audacious ugly goal like like carbon neutrality in four decades. But that's that's something that China does does quite well when it comes to these five-year plans, right? Biting off little chunks of it at a time and saying, you know, we've got the big long-term plan and then five-year pieces, here's where we're going to be in five years and here's where we're going to be in 10 years. You rarely see really, really discrete targets for longer than five years. Of course, for something like carbon neutrality, it's got to be multi-decade. But they're going to try really, really hard. They're really dedicated to to getting as close as possible. And so it's one of those situations. And I used to talk of the same thing about about the nuclear sector, where they said, we're going to build 80 gigawatts. And somebody would say, well, 80 gigawatts is possible. And I go, we know, they know, everybody knows. But if because they were trying to get to 80 gigawatts, they managed to build 65 or 72 when everybody else built three. Like that's still pretty cool. And so that's that's like how I respond to some of those like big, hairy, audacious goals. I'm like, is it realistic? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but are they going to try really hard and spend a bunch of money and, and put a lot of effort into getting as close as possible as was realistically possible? Yeah, for sure. And so that's how I look at it. The five year goal, the 10 year goal. Sure. Let's go for it. The 40 year goal. Eh, we'll, we'll talk about it more when we get closer to it. But they're going to try real hard. Yeah, sure. I mean, of course, we look at the nature of Chinese outbound investment, energy investment, and for example, the Belt and Road, of course, or or for Pakistan, of course, was more the Chinese-Pakistan economic corridor, right? CPEC. It was historically not a super clean outbound investment strategy. And there's a certain logic to it, of course. A lot of the times, uh, these investments were going into countries where they're still looking at solving the electrification question, right? Maybe they're at 60% electrified or 80% electrified or, you know, other you know, power is just too expensive. And that power and lack of access to affordable power is the largest drag on that country's GDP growth. When, when China approaches those kinds of investment regions, you can be sure that the conversation was, What's the cheapest, most reliable power that you can build for me, please? And not, you know, I would really like to have some low carbon power. I mean, of course, hydro uh, sometimes makes a lot of sense in these cases. And it is both the cheapest and the low carbon option. And if you've got resources for hydro, awesome. But a lot of the times the answer was coal. And then, uh, of course, the, the Belt and Road Initiative caught a ton of flack for that, as it should. And 
And we saw that commitment, I think it was last year, where after actually multiple years of the Belt and Road getting greener and greener, there's there's no less than 15 or 20, like greening the Belt and Road working level committees and groups. And Beijing is crawling with them. You can't walk 50 meters without stumbling across somebody trying to green the Belt and Road for a couple of years anyway. Uh, and now it's, now it's been quite successful. It's been greened, I think, to some extent anyway, with the commitment to no, to fund, no more funding for overseas coal plants, that all of the coal plants that were in the pipeline pretty much got the axe. And the ones that were under construction will be allowed to finish, of course. But that was that was a quite quite the quite the win, quite the coup last year for the Belt and Road, certainly for a branding perspective. Now, there's an uh, of course there's a case to be made. Like, is there uh, is there affordable alternatives for the countries that that were previously relying on Chinese coal? That's that's a very fair question. Maybe it's a different topic as we move away from Chinese power sector, but it is a fair and important question to as as a follow up. Yeah, that's true. And and you for that to really matter, mind you, you have to have a a market mechanism that ensures the lowest cost power is favored. And until just last year, we didn't really have one of those in China. So I'm referring to it's called an economic merit order for power. And in a perfectly, you know, in a perfectly efficient system, the least cost power is dispatched first and then the next least cost and so on until you're only left with until you've met your demand ideally and you're left with the most expensive power that has not been dispatched and if you have such a system set up and it's perfectly efficient then you can ensure that you are always dispatching the cheapest power and nobody has to pay more for power than they should but you need to have a system. You need to have such a system in place before investment decisions on the generation side can be made accordingly. So we didn't have one of those uh, in China. We didn't have an economic merit order for power until you know just just about six months ago, maybe. Previously, you might have heard that you know say China overinvests in coal plants. China has too many policies that favor coal, and to a large extent, that was true. One of the big problems was that if you built a coal plant in China, you got a guaranteed number of operating hours for your plant, regardless of whether it was needed, regardless of whether it was the most cost effective. Coal was was unfairly advantaged. And about six months ago, those were stripped. Coal is now forced to compete with all the other energy types. And, and guess what? When it comes to marginal cost of power, coal is expensive. The next kilowatt hour of coal costs a lot more than the next kilowatt hour of wind or of solar or even of nuclear for that matter. They all do better than coal when it comes to the next kilowatt hour dispatch basis. And now that such a system in China is in place, that we have this slow emergence of what you could call an economic merit order, we expect to see investment decisions be made more aligned, uh, more more cost-based investment decisions. Coal still dominates the system. And so coal is still going to be the price benchmark for other types of power. In this year, I, right, all right, so hydro can usually do better than coal as long as you're in a part of the country that has good hydro resources and you've had a good rain year. Nuclear complete, competes quite effectively with coal in the parts of China that they build nuclear, and which 
for right now is just along the coast. So why China is not building nuclear in the inland regions is a subject of much debate and speculation. And I can entertain some of those if there's interest in that. But uh, for now, they're only building on the coasts. And then when it comes to wind and solar, well, at the beginning of the year or last year, wind and solar were very cost effective on a new build basis against coal on a CapEx basis. But with power costs rising and kind of supply crunches, we've seen wind and solar costs on a CapEx basis rise for the first time in like a decade. And so at the moment, a solar and wind, you know, it's more expensive in some parts of China and it's level with coal in other parts of China, and it's much cheaper than coal in certain parts of China. So it really fluctuates depending on the province, on the region, and on the energy type about what's you know the most cost effective, what's the most attractive, and what will drive investment decisions. Yeah, well, of course, it's a, it's a high electricity consuming industry, but even more serious than the high energy consumption is that it's very difficult. We'd say it like this. It's not taxable or it's not directly taxable in the way that, say, a large steel plant or a chemicals factory is. And so the energy intensity that is the relationship between how much power it uses and unit of GDP production was very low. And so back in 2016, 2017, when you've got actually surplus of power, severe surplus of power in southwest China with hydro in Sichuan and and in western China, especially Xinjiang with all of its wind and solar and coal, it made sense to, to have the miners welcome the miners even. They helped soak up some of that excess capacity. And then moving into 2019, 2020, 2021, all of a sudden there, there was no excess capacity anymore. And the industry stakeholders and industry regulators are trying to say like, well, we've got to free up supply somewhere and we also have to start choosing who gets their power cut and which are our encouraged industries and which ones are our discouraged industries. And mining was a pretty easy target by that point when you have very tight power supply and it's you know not creating that much economic activity. It was, it was an easy decision, I think for uh, for the industry regulators to from a power consumption perspective to to kick the miners out the content in this program is for informational purposes only you should not construe any information or other material as investment financial tax or other advice the views expressed by the participants are solely their own a participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.